0: Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Paul McGurian from the University of Washington, talking about perinatal urology. I guess we can get started. Um, My name is Paul McGurian. I'm uh, from Seattle Children's. Hospital and good morning, everyone, who is on the East Coast, I guess on the on the West East Coast it's afternoon. Um, just wanted to go over perinatal urology. This is going to be a very quick talk, uh, and we'll entertain quest- questions later on. Um, it's a lot of it's a large topic to discuss. Um, so oops no reason. I have nothing to disclose. Um, so this is a Life magazine uh, front page. And that was There's in April, 1983. So 37 years ago when ultrasound was just starting, and there were applications of ultrasound and um, and was created as a surgical uh, miracle. Um, Antenatal ultrasound is ideally suited for GU abnormalities, mainly because the kidneys are visible by 13 to 14 weeks. We can see the bladder as a fluid filled mass or any type of abnormality within the kidney as a fluid filled mass. And so it itself had a tremendous impact on pediatric urology. Um, if we look at uh, 37 years ago a lot of patients 37 years used to come in as teenagers with abdominal masses or pain, and were found to have uh, UPJ obstruction um, with kidneys that were barely functioning and underwent nephrectomy. It's rarely seen today. We still see those, but not as often as we used to uh, 37, 40 years ago. Um, Hydenophrosis is the most common congenital condition that was detected by ultrasound. Uh, Some form of urinary dilation is seen in around 1 to 100 pregnancies and is significant in 1 to 500 pregnancies. Uh, When you look at the numbers, the majority of probes, the numbers range between 75 to 80% of those were resolved by one year of age. And we look at all the studies that have been recorded uh the operative rate is less than 30 percent so less than 30 percent of these children that are diagnosed antenatally uh, will require will require some form of surgical intervention um, what the urologist sees is this kidney with with dilation of renal pelvis dilation of the calyces um, And back in the 1980s, it was felt that we should grade these and the Society for Fetal Urology came up with a grading system that pretty much relied mostly on the dilation of the calyces. So the SFU grading system is four grades. Grade one, where only the renal pelvis is dilated like here on the right side with no dilation of calyces. Grade two, where there's moderate dilation of the pelvis and also some mild dilation of the calyces, uh, either one or many. Uh, grade three: uh, a, a more severe dilation of the renal pelvis with more dilation of renal uh, calyces, but the parenchyma is intact. And grade four, uh, where you actually have uh, thinning uh, of the renal parenchyma over the calyces. And this grading system has been used for a very long time. This is an example of grade one, where you've got mild dilation of the renal pelvis, grade two, where you have dilation of renal pelvis, some calyces, maybe one or two, and then grade three, more severe dilation of the calyces, and grade four, uh, thinning of the renal parenchyma. This has also been correlated to surgical um, uh, intervention post-op, realizing that the indications for surgery are very subjective. There are some clear indications, such as decreased renal function or increasing hydronephrosis or discomfort, pain, urinary tract infections. Uh, but when they look, that, this is from Ross back in 2011, and they evaluated 125 infants uh, that presented with antenatal hydronephrosis. Um, and they only looked at SFU grades three and four because those are mostly the ones that will undergo surgical intervention. Uh, so out of the 125, 27%, around 20% of these kids uh, underwent immediate surgical intervention, mainly because of decreased renal function uh, or uh, severe delay in drainage. Uh, and if you look at it, most of these were grade, SFU grade four hydronephrosis. Out of the remainder 98 that were observed over time, uh, there was 21 of these underwent delayed surgical intervention. Again, the majority of those were SFU grade four, um, and then uh, around two thirds of them uh, continued observation. Um, And when you look at the numbers, yes, the majority are SFU grade threes, but there are some SFU grade fours that have been followed conservatively. Uh, so not all SFU grade fours need surgical intervention. Some of them can be observed, but we have to observe them very carefully over time. Um, as far as the obstetricians are concerned, antenatally, what they can tell us is the AP diameter of the pelvis, and they've been really concentrating on the, on the pelvic diameter um, in in utero for hydronephrosis, uh, and these have been classified. So the uh, the kid the Kidneys are seen between 12 and 18 weeks gestation. Uh, the rate is likely seen in the second and third trimester and the first renal ultrasound is done at approximately 20 weeks gestation. And then, and then those are the parameters as far as renal pelvis dilation. Uh, so any dilation greater than 10 millimeters in the second trimester is considered to be severe, uh, greater than 15 millimeters in the third trimester uh, less than nine millimeters in the first trimester and less than seven millimeters in the seven, a second trimester have been considered to be mild. If you see the majority of these are in the mild, moderate category and a very small percentage in the severe category. Um, as far as postnatal or risk for postnatal intervention or disease, uh, more so in the moderate and severe category, less so in the mild category. Uh, so the mouse uh, a lot of times would not require any, any intervention, the severe so may require surgical intervention. I think from a urology standpoint, our job is to differentiate between those that are physiological and are clinically not significant with those that are obstructed and need intervention. Uh, because the physiological ones do not require treatment and we, uh, we should avoid unnecessary testing, uh, antibiotic prophylaxis, or surgery. It is the other group, which is actually the smaller group uh, that we would need then need treatment. Uh, and the main reason for treatment is protect renal function, uh, permit growth and development, and then avoid any type of complications such as urinary tract infection uh, or pain. Um, around five years ago, several societies have come together, uh, to create a multidisciplinary consensus on the classification. It was felt that the SFU grading classification did not address all the components of, of, uh, uh, collecting system dilation and those, And so all these societies came together and came up with a, what is called a UTD, uh, classification system. Um, the UTD grading system has six uh, clinical relevant features. It looks at the APD diameter, the anterior-posterior diameter of the renal pelvis, uh, the appearance of the parenchyma or their cyst in the parenchyma, is there, is there dysplasia, is there thinning of the parenchyma? Uh, it looks at parenchymal thickness, uh, which is a subjective assessment, they uh, looked at calyceal dilation. If the calyces, are they centrally dilated? Are they peripherally dilated? Um, they looked at ureal dilation. Is the ureter normal or abnormal? Uh, looked at the bladder. Uh, is the bladder normal, abnormal, thickness of the bladder? Is there something else in the bladder, such as, u- as ureter seal or dilated posterior urethra? And came up with the what is called the UTD classification system. Um, It's UTDP1, UTDP2, and UTDP3. Uh, If you compare those to the SFU grading system, just one grade lower. So UTDP1 is usually a a SFU grade 2. UTDP2 is an SFU grade 3. And UTDP3 is similar to an SFU grade 4. But the grading system is a little bit different in that it it adds all these components uh, to the grading system. Uh, So, when we look at the postnatal presentation, um, UTDP-1 is thought to be low risk. Uh, Those are ultrasounds that are done beyond 48 hours. Uh, The AP diameter is less than 50 millimeters. There's only central calothelial dilation, not peripheral dilation. Those are low risk patients, UTDP-1s. The P3s on the right-hand side are those that are at high risk. Those are uh, kids that have AP diameters of greater than 50 millimeters. There is peripheral calyceal dilation. The parenchymal thickness is abnormal. Either there are cysts in parenchyma or the parenchyma is thin. Uh, the ureters may or may not be abnormal, or the bladder is abnormal. Um, in the middle are the intermediate risk, the utdp 2s and those are those are kids that have uh, sorry, great less than 50 millimeters dilation. Um, and there's peripheral keratocellular dilation. The uterine may or may not be a normal, but the renal parenchyma is normal, the bladder is normal, and those are classified as UTDP2s. <clears throat> so the management has changed into a risk based management. Uh, with the UTDP1s, so we usually follow these with ultrasounds, maybe every, every six months. DCUG and these are not recommended, antibiotics are not recommended. And renal scans to look for function is also not recommended. For the UTDP3s on the right-hand side, we would recommend very close follow-up, but possibly an ultrasound, repeat ultrasound around a month. Uh, we would recommend getting avoiding voiding cystic to look for, for reflux. Uh, antibiotics in this high group is recommended. There are several studies that have shown that there's a higher rate of urinary tract infection in this group. And functional renal studies are also recommended in this group, but that's at the discretion of the clinician. I think when you look at nephrosis, you've got to look at this as a, as not as a single shot and single exam, but serial exams. And if there are changes on the serial exam and in, in the UTDP3, what I usually do is I would repeat an ultrasound, uh, once or twice, if there is no change or there's an increase in degree of finding nephrosis, then I would get a renal scan to evaluate function and drainage. Um, for the UTDP2s, again, a follow up ultrasound every three months. Uh, the VCUG is at discretion of the clinician, uh, the antibiotics are at discretion of the clinician. Um, and I think um, this slide is probably wrong because the antibiotics is at the discretion of the clinician together with the family. So uh, it's really important to talk it over with the family. Uh, there are several families that are today not and not comfortable giving prophylactin and antibiotics. You can talk to them about that. Uh, I usually tell families that with the UTDP2s, if we actually follow them conservatively with just ultrasounds, um, realize that around 20% of them will have vesicular reflux. Most of these are clinically not significant, and therefore I would not perform on the ODCC Uh, But if they do develop a fervile urinary tract infection, that is maybe an indication to actually get a VCUG in this group of, of individuals. Um, uh, Braga from uh, Canada has actually looked at the comparison between the SFU and the TDP system. They pretty much compare. Equally. Uh, around 30% of them, the UTDP2s and P3s versus SFU grade 3 and 4 require surgery. And the UTI rate in, in, in this higher group, the SFU 3, 4, UTDP2, 3, the rate of UTI is around 8 to 10%. When you look at the etiology of moderate, mod, uh, moderate to severe hydronephrosis, the majority of these are due to ureteropelvic pelvic junction obstruction. Uh, around 20 to 30 percent are due to vesico reflux, a small percentage due to obstruction, uh, an even small percentage due to multicystic dysplastic kidneys, around 5 percent, uh, duplication anomalies, and valves are found in around 1 to 2 percent of an- antenatally diagnosed hydronephrosis. Now, what can usually happen with those this is, for example, an SFU grade 3 or ETDP2. Uh, Hydronephrosis; those can resolve over time. On the left-hand side, uh, you notice that there's dilation of renal pelvis and calyces, and one year later, uh, the kidney is normal. On the other hand, you can get those to become significantly dilated or have decreased function on nuclear medicine study uh, with the ureter pelvic junction obstruction being the most common, um, and that may require surgical intervention. There's one other entity that I'd like to discuss is the fact that we should repeat another ultrasound if the initial postnatal ultrasound is normal, meaning that if, for example, there's prenatal hydronephrosis, you get a postnatal ultrasound 48 to 72 hours later, the ultrasound is normal. Uh, Our recommendation is to repeat this ultrasound a month to two months later. because around, uh, usually 5% of these kids will have hydronephrosis uh, nephrosis that will develop at the month one month ultrasound that was not present at birth uh, or during the first week of life. Um, and so our recommendation is to repeat these ultrasounds to make absolutely sure that the hydronephrosis nephrosis is indeed resolved. <clears throat> as far as voiding cystic we kind of discussed it in the UTDP2s. I think avoiding cystic urethrograms are indicated if they help us in determining clinically significant uh, abnormalities. So those are kids with significant dilations greater than 15 millimeters because you would like to know if that dilation is due to reflux or is it due to your pelvic junction obstruction. Uh, Those with bilateral hydronephrosis, especially the males with bilateral hydronephrosis to rule out posterior urethral valves, um, those with dilated ureters, uh, those with abnormal valves, because ab- abnormal gliders, because they may have neurogenic bladder, secondary valves, uh, duplicated system with hydronephrosis because that helps with our management of these cases. If They do have reflux to the lower pole of a duplicate system or not. Uh, those that have abnormally echogenic kidneys or small kidneys. Um, as far as MAC3 renal scan, which is a scan of choice for uh, evaluating function and, uh, and drainage, again, UTDP3 hydronephrosis uh, may require MAC3 renal scan. As I stated before, I usually would get a couple of ultrasounds before proceeding with a UTDP3. And again, the MAC3 renal scan is more accurate, we've done later, so you can wait two to three months to get the MAC3 renal scan. Um, unless it's, it's the hydronephrosis is severe enough that you think that the MAC-3 is warranted earlier. Uh, if there are small scarred kidneys or small dysplastic kidneys, uh, the, MAC, uh, the renal scan may be adequate. An interesting thing, if, I mean, you can talk about DMSA scan for performing this person's MAC-3 renal scan. What I found is that the DMSA scan has a significantly higher rate of uh, radiation to the child than the MAC-3 renal scan. So. Um, I've pretty much switched to MAC-3s unless uh, I'm looking for something specific for a DMSA. There's a a size discrepancy or high-grade vesico reflux. Um, As far as kids that we should watch very, very carefully, uh, because most of these most likely will require some form of surgical intervention those with bilateral hydronephrosis, especially if the AP diameter is greater than than 20 millimeters, Uh, those with a salted kidney and and a significant dilation of 50 millimeters or greater, those that have high uh, dilated ureters, uh, those that have a differential function that's reduced, and the small echogenic uh, kidneys as we'd like to protect renal function as much as possible. So a, if you have a patient with SFU grade three or four or UTDP two and P3 hydronephrosis, um, a renal scan, as I said, is um, usually performed, I think we, we, we performed perform the renal scan after serial ultrasounds. If the um, diuretic renal scan is normal, uh, we then follow these kids with uh, repeated ultrasounds. If it's abnormal, uh, you would follow them with ultrasound and then repeat the serial di- uh, diuretic renal scan. Um, and the main reason for performing that is to evaluate uh, renal function to see if it's stable or if change, uh, because there's, if there's greater than 20% change in renal function, uh, that in itself is an indication for surgery. Um, and again, if the surgery is indicated for poor function or significantly delayed drainage. Uh, so this is an ultrasound for UPJ obstruction. I can actually see the dilated renal pelvis with an obstruction right there. Um, UPJ obstructions can be either intrinsic, uh, which is the most common thing with neonates, either a dysplastic segment at the ureo junction or a high riding uh, insertion, uh, or could be extended, extrinsic to those crossing vessels. Those are usually seen in older children. Uh, I've seen a few kids that have had mild hydronephrosis, um, antenatal diagnosis, postnatal and postnatal di- uh, ultrasounds, and then develop severe hydronephrosis to crossing vessel um, at a later age, and that can happen. Uh, this is a significantly dilated system. You notice that the calices are dilated, very thin parenchyma due to UPJ obstruction. Um, Nuclear medicine studies are performed the MAC-3 renal scans. The important thing with those is that the kidney needs to be hydrated. Uh, we would always place the catheter in the bladder uh, to drain the bladder because that can skew, skew your results. Um, and then Lasix is given, um, most institutions will give it the peak. Uh, there are different ways of giving Lasix, but most of the time, you just wait until the radionuclei peaks within the uh, parenchyma, and then and then uh, and, and then give Lasix. Um, so this is an example of a kid with a duplicated collecting system that has a UPJ obstruction of the lower pole. And as you notice, the, the counts keep on increasing uh, after insertion of Lasix right here on the right hand side. And this, then you can see on so the study, you have a ureter and then a very this plastic segment right there. Uh, that is causing the obstruction uh, MR urography uh, has been popularized in the last several years in evaluating kids with uh, with hydronephrosis, and this is a really nice uh, um, a study uh, that will that can give us both function of the kidney can then give us drainage from the kidney um, and a lot of institutions have substituted this study to uh, the uh, MAC3 renal scan. Uh, the only disadvantage is in all the kids, this needs to be done with sedation. Um, and then the other thing that the, the MRU can de- 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 detect is some abnormalities, such as over here, fibroepithelial polyps. Um, and you can actually render the renal pelvis and look at them, do some uh, um, modeling of uh, how, how the ureter and the renal pelvis hook uh, to each other. That could prepare you for surgical intervention. For example, on the right hand side, this is significantly dilated renal pulse, Your incision may be a little bit lower uh, than when you where you would in it, uh, initially. Um, as far as treatment is concerned, the prima surgical treatment, there are two options um, a surgery um, if there's significant hydronephrosis on the ultrasound, or if they've decreased the function of the kidney. Uh, and those that do not have uh, any of that, we would then watch them with serial ultrasounds. And if we do get magnetic resonance scan decrease of 20%, indicate surgery. Again, uh, a lot of people would argue this is already too late, and we don't have any studies to date uh, that can actually determine um, and tell us which kidneys are going to do fine, which are not. Um, and so I think with these kids, it's extremely important to watch them conservatively, and very carefully. Uh, when we look at numbers, most kids, uh, if they will undergo any type of surgical insert, intervention will do so within the first two uh, years, uh, absolutely to up to the first four years. And so in the first two years of life, it's really important to watch them very closely. Um, initially, we would get an ultrasound every three months uh, for the first year and then, they're stable Space them out a little bit more in the second year. Um, <clears throat> this is an example of your pelvic junction obstruction. You those systems can be significantly dilated. you don't notice the kidney is normal in appearance. And the common operation is the uh, Heinz pyroplasty, pretty much dissecting, excising the dysplastic segment and three anastomosing the ureter up to the pelvis. Uh, this can be done either with open, uh procedure laparoscopic or robotic. Uh, the two most common today are open for the younger kid and robotic for the older kids. Um, <clears throat> for the infants, we can do those in very tiny incisions. And I think our incisions are around two to 2.5 centimeters. Um, you can you can bring the pelvis up to the skin level, uh, perform the anastomosis, and then put it back in. Um, and then the robotic uh, surgeries are done uh, also small incisions, and um, um, and uh, they're appropriate for the older kids. Uh, the, the different institutions uh, have different indications. Uh, our indications are six months or older. Uh, we would uh, refer them to the robotic uh, surgeons, anyone uh, that's under six months uh, most likely would benefit from an open pyroplasty. These kids go home the next day, um, and their pain is pretty well tolerated. <clears throat> The second abnormality that I'd like to talk about is ureal dilation. As you know, this could either be an obstructed mega refluxing mega and or none of the above. Um, most of them today are diagnosed antenatally. Uh, some would present later on with urinary tract infections, stones, or hematuria. Um, this is a renal scan that basically shows the kidney and the dilated ureter. Um, and uh, some of them do get obstructed and require surgical intervention. Those are with delayed drainage. Um, and again, the they're usually due to a dysplastic segment or uh, a segment does not work, does not peristyles uh, that cause a primary obstructive megaureter. these can be really dilated, such as this one in this in this picture. Uh, this is, you just notice the dilated ureter and dysplastic segment of ureter. Um, these types of operations for the obstructed ones have different ways of doing the operation. Uh, this is a tapered uh, ureter reimplantation performed. But one thing to remember with the mega ureters is that 80% of them will get better over time. So this is a pre, uh, this is a kid with a severely dilated uh, system on the left side um, and then this is the 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 that's an IVP when IVPs were done uh, you notice that 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 ureter has decreased in size uh, so 80% of these will get better over time so most mega ureters we would fall conservatively <coughs> even those that have delayed drainage as um, as some as a lot of them will get better over time and only operate on those that have decreased function um, or significant increase in degree of dilation over time. Uh, cystic kidney disease, the most common being this, which is multicystic dysplastic kidney. Um, the important thing to note is they look different on ultrasound than the UPJ obstruction. With the UPJ obstruction, you have a central dilated pelvis and dilated calices. Here, the cysts are uh, randomly within the kidney, so you notice they're everywhere in the kidney. Uh, It's a classic finding in uh, the multicystic dysplastic kidney. In the past, these kidneys were removed with the thought that that, uh, they can lead to uh, cancer, but this has been proven to be wrong. And currently, our our management of these is observation uh, with serial ultrasounds uh, these usually regress uh, the risk of malignancy is very small. Uh, the risk of hypertension is also small um, and, and and there's really no risk for tract infection or any other abnormalities. Uh, we would recommend a nephrectomy only if they are so large that they cause a problem with respiratory or feeding problems uh, but they fail to involute they don 't go over over time. Um, This may be a more cost-effective way of of treating those patients because you do not affect them and you're done. Uh, While with the observation group, you do have to do serial ultrasounds uh, to make sure that they have regressed over time. Um, The Next category, those with uh, ureel duplication, uh, where you have a duplicated collecting system, as you all know, with Weigert-Meier-Low. Um, The upper pole is the ectopic uh, ureter, the lower pole is the one that refluxes or is lateral. Um, These could be due to on the left-hand side, the dilated ureter with an ectopic insertion of the ureter. And on the the, um, right-hand side could be due to a ureter seal um, and that is obstructing the upper pole system. Usually those are diagnosed antenatally. And the most common diagnosis antenatal is a dilated uh, uh, upper pole segment of a kidney with dilated ureter. Uh, Sometimes they can even see the ureter seal on the antenatal ultrasound. The management has um, been evolving over time. So there's endoscopic puncture. If it it is a ureter seal, you can puncture the ureter seal. In the past, partial nephrectomy was the most common uh, operation for these types of anomalies. Uh, today, the most common repair reconstruction is the third one is the ure- ure- ureter ureterostomy, um, tapered ureteral reinplant for dilated uh, collecting system, a complete reconstruction uh, with excision of the seal. And some can um, be managed conservatively. There's a small entity of ectopic uh, hydronephrodic ureters that can be managed uh, conservatively. Those are the ones that do not have function at all. And then what happens over time, the hydronephrosis improves and resolves. Um, This is the look on the ultrasound where you have a dilated upper pole system, dilated ureters all the way down to the bladder. Um, and as far as, as surgical options, we talked about uh, the partial nephrectomy, removing the upper pole, leaving the lower pole ureter in place. What happens? The ureter decompresses. Uh, you can do a lower pole excision, especially if you're doing it laparoscopically. You can go all the way down and excise the ureter close to the viral without going into the renal seal. Uh, you can do a ureo ureterostomy Most of these are done lower than what is this, is a ureo pyelostomy but you can do it lower, uh, leaving the stump of the ureter or a complete reconstruction of actually taking the ureters together and re-implanting them into the bar with exc- excision of the seal. <clears throat> the simplest form is a ureteral incision. Uh, different ways of doing this, uh, but incising the seal uh, to decompress it um, one of the risks of that is, is forming a vesico-ureter reflux, which may become clinically significant and require intervention. But at the same time, if you do that, what the ureter is decompressed, so your ureter comes down to in size to a normal size, um, and feeling it's much easier to reimplant a <clears throat> normal caliber ureter than entirely, the ureter into the bladder when the lower pole ureter is normal in caliber. Uh, this is an, an example of a kid that underwent a ureterostomy ure pre-op, post-op uh, with resolution of the upper pole hydronephrosis um, or a partial nephrectomy, where this is a significantly dilated upper pole system with no function, uh, what you see over here. And, um, and um, this is a post-op uh, ultrasound. Uh, that shows a kidney, it looks pretty much normal in appearance. Most of these kidneys are smaller than the contralateral uh, normal kidney. Um, As far as prenatal intervention with antinatal hydronephrosis, very rare to require that. Um, I would consider intervention if there's bilateral significant hydronephrosis, especially if it is associated with oligohydramnios. Where there are no other abnormalities, chromosomal studies are normal, and that when you do uh, multiple taps of the bladder, the parameters are abnormal. Um, again, uh, uh, a common question in the in-services and the boards is if you actually have a tap uh, a bladder tap that's abnormal. What do next? What, the, what would you do next? Uh, the answer is to tap again because the the first tap is not as uh, is not accurate. You have to tap two or three bladder taps uh, to get an accurate diagnosis as as urine parameters. Um, And all these prenatal intervention and prenatal ultrasounds have um, had a major reduction in the severe congenital anomalies. A lot of these severe ones uh, that have other abnormalities uh, are a lot of times terminated, and therefore we don't see them as often as we used to prior to ultrasound. Uh, The other um, entity is posterior urethral valves. This is an example of fetal MRI of a valve. You can see the distended bladder, the dilated posterior urethra over here. Uh, Same thing here, distended bladder, dilated posterior urethra, Um, and then severe severe hydronephrosis bilaterally. Um, As far as intervention in utero, uh, the main reason to intervene with posterior urethral valves is to prevent pulmonary hyperplasia, uh, hopefully to improve kidney function, but that, that has not shown to be true uh, or improve bladder function. Um, the uh, most commonly performed antenatal intervention for posterior urethral valves is percutaneous vesicremniotic shunt. Uh, but there are more and more uh, centers around the country that have uh, that are doing fetoscopic surgery, so you can actually do a vesicostomy in case that have got some of them. Some have even ablated valves uh, in fetuses, um, and the indications for fetal intervention if there's a 20 to 32 weeks gestation, uh, there's no oligohydramnios with kidneys that are adequate. Uh, uh, the chromosome studies, no other abnormalities. Uh, The problem is that there are high complication rates with with, with those including prematurity. um, And it definitely helps the lungs, uh, but otherwise it's questionable as far as, does it actually help uh, renal function? um, And the feeling is that it does not improve renal function but allows for adequate uh, uh, lung function. And again, the percutaneously placing a trocar into a amniotic shunt. Um, sometimes infusing into the amniotic sac with infusion will allow for better placement and a working space. Uh, there are complications associated with that. Uh, some of them like uh, over here, herniation of small bowel uh, uh, through the port that was inserted, or strangulation of the umbilical cord on the, on the right-hand side here. Uh, and all of us have seen these types of complications and uh, <clears throat> that can occur with carniotic shunt. Again, the VCUG is diagnostic. You notice know, the bladder is trabeculated up here. This is a dilated posterior urethra. Uh, that is obstructed due to fouls. Um, and this is, this is the appearance of valves. You notice a small opening and, and the valve over here. Um, uh, postnatally, uh, as soon as the kid is born, the easiest thing is to put a 5 French feeding tube into the bladder. Uh, we would refrain from putting a Foley catheter because the Foley can obstruct the ure- urethal orifices. So it's just, just putting put a, a 5 French feeding tube, uh, checking their electrolytes, uh, getting an ultrasound, avoiding cystic retrogram and then any type of functional study uh, after the valves are, are ablated. And you notice here on the ultrasound of the dilated bladder with dilated ureters bilaterally. Um, and an the voiding cystic that shows a very dilated posterior of extremely trabeculated bladder with vesicoureteral reflux. <clears throat> this is the way they look on ultrasound is you have those valves on either side. Um, our our uh, management is with endoscopic incision, usually with a cold knife, uh, incising the valves at the five and seven o'clock position, sometimes three and nine o'clock position. Um, I think the, there are long-term problems. 30% of kids with procedures sort or of valves will end up in end-stage renal disease requiring transplant. Um, the obstruction effects uh, a lot of times are permanent. Uh, there's this thing called the bowel bladder syndrome especially in teenagers that have to distend of the bladder uh, it's felt that there's a the, there's a pop off mechanism so example if you have a uh high-grade reflux a non-functioning kidney that could be a pop-off uh, that decreases the pressure and therefore protects the contralateral kidney that's kind of been debatable debated if that actually occurs or not um there's several studies that have shown that uh If you do get to native creatine of 0.8 or lower, uh, they have much better prognosis than those that have a higher um, creatine and native creatamine. Another entity that can also be diagnosed antenatally is uh, prune belly syndrome. Uh, The prenatal findings are very distended bladder, hydrouretonyphrosis, a very irregular and wide abdominal wall and understand testicles if they couldn't uh, look for them. Uh, so those kids are born with a very distended abdomen. Um, like this, two pictures over here with lax abdominal wall. Uh, we notice there's a very severely dilated uh, bladder uh, with high-grade reflux. Uh, make, a, make a little urethra. Um, the GU manifestation of the prune belly are several. Uh, you can get renal dysplastic change in the kidney re- leading to renal failure. It's felt that the creatinine uh, nadir of 0.7 is, is better, It's a better long-term prognosis. <clears throat> you can get a dilated bladder, prostatic urethra, and ureters. Um, and, and most of these kids have poor bladder emptying, uh, reflux. Megalo very a dilated urethra, vir- edalia, urethra vir- is rare. Urethroatresia also is rare. Uh, because of these, you can actually get urethra re- by or, or patent urethra. Uh, and all of these kids have uh, intra abdominal uh, testicles. Uh, there are several extra GU manifestations. Uh, 100% of these will have an abdominal wall defect uh, because there's some respiratory. Um, uh, uh, Implications, including uh, pulmonary hyperplasia, pneumothorax, uh, pneumomediastinum, and chronic obstruction, cardiovascular around 25%, uh, 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 GI with malrotation and fallacy around 24%, uh, musculoskeletal in around 25% 3% of these with cut feet, pectus. There's some metabolic and endocrine abnormalities and infections. Uh, uh, and sepsis are pretty common, uh, are common around 14% of these children. Uh, the categories, and the three categories, and you can actually see that the category three is the mildest form, uh, category, category one is the more severe form. Those are usually the category ones are non compatible with life, uh, with renal you know, dysplasia, oligohydramnios, spongy hyperplasia, porous features, and urethral atresia. So the way the abdominal wall looks, the abdominal wall laxity. A lot of these kids eventually will undergo some form of surgical intervention uh, with an abdominal plasty, pre and post op. Uh, Those are post op findings of abdominal abdominal plasty in these kids. Um, This is the what is called a Montfort operation, pretty much taking a bunch of skin off um, and then interposing could be the obliques on either side, leaving the umbilicus in the middle. Um, and um, and then uh, doing the abdominal plastics as you see, the obliques are brought and crossed over each other to create a stronger uh, midline abdominal wall. <clears throat> Lastly, I'd like to talk about bladder um, I'm sure that Dana uh, Weiss um, um, last week uh, gave a superb talk on this. Um, we still, uh, bladder exophy can be diagnosed annually. Uh, because of that, we are seeing less, uh, a lower number of patients with bladder exophy than we used to before, uh, mainly because a lot of these are terminated, especially in the European countries. Um, prenatally, uh, we are still seeing kids that are not diagnosed just because of the fact that the uh, prenatal fetal medicine uh, and, uh, um, physicians uh, um, do not recognize those. Um, I think the, the important thing antenatally is, is if you don't see the bladder, uh, think bladder extrophy, and I think that's a message that needs to be clearly a uh, message to the MFMs in the community once you do that, you look for other uh, abnormalities, such as low septombolycus, a lower abdominal wall mass, which is uh, the extra feet, bladder, um, and then the the genital structures are poorly defined. We've had several kids in the last uh, several years that have basically been told that they had a female fetus uh, and this was a male extra feet. Um, And those are the findings, you know, the abdominal wall mass, um, the lower set um, and um, and then you can look for diastasis of synthesis, pubis and genital abnormalities. Um, but those are things that can be diagnosed antenatally. Um, the benefits of prenatal diagnosis is that we can optimize care. We can give and educate the families before the kid is born. Uh, if they need to schedule an induction of labor uh, we can talk about the surgery. Usually those surgeries are delayed, so we can actually delay the surgery but actually plan uh, for the surgeon and the last continuity of care. <clears throat> those are examples of uh, the spectrum of bladder exophy. This is just an epispadius where you actually have um, an epispadiac urethra, um, either in males or in females. The bladder is inside and the urethra is epispadiac. Um, and then and then the bladder exophy, uh, where you actually have exophy of the bladder and, the, and an epispate at the same time. This is a male uh, where the umbilicus is low set, the bladder is exophy, the urethral plate um, and, the, and the penis. Um, um, again, uh, this is pre and post uh, surgical reconstruction. Um, there's, as I'm pretty sure Dana Weiss talked to you about this, there's some challenges to bladder extrophy. Uh, the bladder volume is a big uh, component of that. A lot of these bladder plates will grow with time, some of them do not. And if they don't, then you actually have small bladder capacities, uh, which will require <clears throat> some form of intervention to allow them to be continent. Uh, uh, there's no internal or external urethral sphincter. Uh, The abdominal wall is defective. uh, Most of these kids have inguinal hernias, the diastasis of symphysis pubis, and then genital abnormalities, uh, both in the males with the phallus and the females with uh, uterine prolapse. And more importantly, the psychological impact uh, that this uh, entity has on uh, children with bladder ecstrophy Who will, over their lifetime, require multiple surgical procedures uh, to get them uh, to a um, uh, to get them to um, as far as uh, normal function? This is a female with bladder exophy. Same thing. We have a bladder exophy. The clitoris, which is bifid, low-lying umbilicus. And this is uh, spike a cast for for uh, immobilization, uh, um, but this is a post-op figure of a number like us. Um, this um, I consider the most difficult uh, part of pediatric urology is managing kids with cloacal extrophy. So basically have extrophy of the hindgut, uh, two bladder halves. This is an uh, interception of small bowel into the hindgut uh two hemiphalases um and uh, those kids um and I, I consider this the most difficult uh, component of surgical management um, um a lo- unlike bladder exophilo these kids will have prenatal abnormalities a large majority of them will have a, a, other than the abdominal wall defect will have an ophthalmology and will make the closure even more difficult uh, a lot of them do have myelomeningocele um, and poorly defined genital structures. Their genital organs, especially in males, is diminutive, um, and and um, and uh, a lot of these will require some form of <coughs> of reconstruction when they get uh, older. Uh, there's some limb abnormalities uh, and then kidney uh, abnormalities, including absent kidneys, pelvic kidneys, osho kidney. This is an example of a cloacal with a very large umbilical seal. Um, and our current manage of these is a stage repair. So pretty much doing the um, seal uh, and the um, uh, hindgut um, separation first uh, to create a colostomy, leaving the bladder halves, um, bringing the bladder halves together in the midline, and then later on doing the uh, reconstruction of the bladder uh, at a later stage. And there are significant long-term problems with these kids, including spinal cord abnormalities, uh, musculoskeletal abnormalities, <coughs> the omphalocele <coughs> um, and the abdominal wall defect. Uh, a lot of them will have short gut, uh, so there are GI uh, consequences. Especially if you're looking at kids that you want, would like to reconstruct a lot, of these kids will require some form of augmentation, cystoplasty. How do you do that when there's short gut uh, and no large bowel to reconstruct uh, renal anomalies, uh, their fertility challenges, um, and their uh, genitalia are underdeveloped. Uh, finally, just for the last minute, I'll talk about uh, uh, lower uh, genital uh, anomalies of the vagina, uh, including uh, a UG sinus, basically both the vaginal and the urethral uh, openings come together in a single common channel um and the second is a cloaca uh, where both the uh, rectum the vagina and the urethra come in together at, as one sinus to the outside so they are basically one opening to the outside <clears throat> or an ab- absent vagina um, <clears throat> um the cloacas are divided into low or high confluence, pretty much depending on where the confluence of the vagina and, uh, and the hindgut come into. The low confluence ones are obviously easier to reconstruct than the high confluence ones. Uh, the high confluence ones have a higher rate of neurogenic component by requiring intermittent Um There are different variations of this, but the, the main thing is there's just one opening in the perineum. Uh, the high confluence I really regard like this one over here on the left-hand side, uh, where the distance between the bladder and neck uh, and the vagina is less than 1.5 centimeters, um, and um, the low confluence is lower, the greater than that. Um, we're on time, 11 o'clock, and so we're done with this talk. I, I'm going to open this up for questions. I just need to sign off here and. Any questions from the group? I don't see twenty-seven participants. No questions. <clears throat> Thank you, Owen. And I think the take-home message with these kids is is. Now, uh, especially with antenatal hydronephrosis is looking at serial imaging, not just one. There was a question, if you find an isolated epispedes, any further workup? Um, I would still get a renal ultrasound to evaluate renal function. A lot of these kids will have a normal bladder normal bladder capacity. Uh, the issue is, uh, as far as the epispedes is concerned, Um, is what type of epispedis is it? There's those that are distal to the sphincteric mechanism, uh, but then there's the penopubic. The penopubic epispedis are those that have an incompetent bladder neck, and therefore continence is an issue with these kids. Um, What we do know is that continence is directly related to bladder capacity. So if you have a normal bladder capacity, you are better able to perform a bladder neck reconstruction um, and so the epispadus on the whole, the epispadus kids with just isolated epispadus, penopubic pubic uh are do better as far as continence is concerned. But no other workup is required. Uh, some of us would get a a measure of bladder capacity before we do any type of bladder neck reconstruction to evaluate them. I think the uh, the thing that has really happened over the last 10-15 years with Bo- bladder exophy and epispadis is the collaborative. Uh, there have been multiple collaboratives, there's one with Boston Children's Shop uh, and Milwaukee uh, that is an open collaborative, there's another one in the Midwest. Uh, I'm, I belong to an international collaborative in India workshop and we go there every year uh, hopefully, we'll be able to do so in January, but uh, every year, and uh, and just to extra fee closures. Uh, the concept there is we follow those kids on a yearly basis. They come back every year, we follow them and, and critically assess our outcomes. I think with that group, which involves uh, four institutions um, plus multiple international um, uh, individuals that come to the workshop. Uh, There have been several improvements, and I think with these types of workshops, we're able to uh, improve the management and the outcome of these children. The question here, do you offer training opportunities for foreign interns? Yes, we would. Um, I think the issue with uh, uh, foreign interns is, is the issue of licensing. Uh, If you do have your USMLEs, uh, you're able to get a license within our state, then yes, you can participate um, um, in clinical work, and we do have that opportunity. Uh, On the other hand, we've had several foreign um, physicians who have come over uh, as observers, so we've had uh, several from uh, China, India uh, that have come over. I think that's another option to come in as an observer, uh, stay for several months as an observer, um, and um, and get experience that way too. Participate in research activities if you'd like. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.